Gilman's dreams consisted largely in plunges through limitless abysses of inexplicably colored twilight and bafflingly disordered sound, abysses whose material and gravitational properties, and whose relation to his own entity, he could not even begin to explain. Similarly, oftentimes we cannot even begin to explain what some filmmakers have done to the work of H.P. Lovecraft. Allow the cast of Cthulhu to be your guide through the world of H.P. Lovecraft adaptations from the superb to the truly cosmically horrific. I'm Jim Rohner. And I'm James McCormick. And today we'll be talking about the second episode in the first season of Showtime's short-lived Masters of Horror, Dreams in the Witch House, uh, from Dennis Paoli and Stuart Gordon. And joining us to discuss it is Battleship Pretensions' David Bax, making his main voyage haha, onto the waters of Castle Cthulhu. David, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited about this. Um, so this is, as we advertised, uh, we now have 100% of the uh, regular co or hosts of Battleship Pretension on our podcast. Scott, nice guy, not a regular host, so I'm just kind of counting you and okay. you and Tyler in this. But uh, I can't remember if we had Tyler tell us the gist of or, or what the breakdown of Battleship Pretension is, David. But since some people may not know who you are, you're a regular on I Do Movies Badly, but you are you're you're new here in Castle Cthulhu. So why don't people or why don't you tell yourself? Tell these people a little bit about yourself and what you do at Battleship Pretension, basically. So, uh, thank you. Battleship Pretension uh, is a uh, battleshipretension.com is a website in which you can, uh, at which you can read a lot of movie reviews and find links to other uh, uh, other writings and, and lots of other podcasts about movies. The uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, the main there's a fancier word for main that I that I can't think of right now. Uh, the main podcast flagship, um, uh, the flagship podcast is exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> uh, at Battleship Pretension is Battleship Pretension the podcast, which Tyler and I started back in March of 2007, um, and uh, we, we don't have as much of a structure as most podcasts. Uh, we kind of we kind of sort of pick a topic every week, or or we or we'll have a guest and it'll sort of. Uh, uh, revolver on that but mostly we 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 talk movies uh every every week and then also pretty much every week we do episodes that are just me and tyler talking about the movies we've watched recently we also have a patreon patreon.com slash battleship pretension but it is a uh, long form movie discussion that can range from the academic academic to the esoteric to the truly dumb <laughs> um, uh, and sometimes goes off topic and isn't about uh, movies at all but uh whatever we're doing it seems to have uh uh gotten a fair number of people listening to us for at this point oh well over 13 years so um wow. uh, uh battleship is where you can find that uh, if you don't know uh what it is and you can read all my movie reviews there um including uh i the uh the color out of space from earlier this year i'm sure you guys have talked about uh uh, that movie. Um, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, not only can you find my review of from the theatrical release of The Color of Outer Space, if you go back a year or two, or more maybe, you can find my home video review of the Shout the Screen Factory Blu-ray of The Curse, uh, which is also <laughs> based on The Color of Outer Space. So I, I was trying to think of what Lovecraft adaptations have I covered at BattleshipRetention.com. Those are the two that leap to mind. And there's also, I believe, currently on Battleship Retention, a review for the beach house with james that james recently told me is a kind of a lovecraftian film to a certain degree. Oh, i didn't i didn't that was tyler's review i didn't watch that one. Oh well then i'm not going to read it or encourage other people to read it um 
But yeah, um, we James and I did uh, color, cover the Colorado Space. We covered it in the lobby of the Alamo Draft House in Brooklyn, actually, right after we we saw it. That was fun. Fond memories of so a long, yeah, yeah pre so long ago, right? Yeah, yeah, pre pandemic era. Uh, what are we even doing? Well, what we are doing is covering um, Stuart Gordon's Dreams in the Witch House, which I kept saying in my head was like the last Stuart Gordon thing that we were going to cover on this, but I forgot that he also has Castle Freak, so we have that to look forward to? Question mark? I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I haven't watched that one in a while, but um, maybe we should wait for that one and t- when the uh, remake comes up. Are they remaking that? Oh, it, it, it was made, yeah. It was made in, um, I think, Romania, and like supposedly a bigger budget. Um, oh I remember seeing Meredith Borders went there to cover it like when it was being filmed and Barbara Crampton actually is in it, but I think as a different character now, which is a cool little throwback. So oh, fun. we'll see. Yeah, we'll see, you know? All right. Well, this, this is at least the, in terms of chronology and his career, the last uh, Lovecraft adaptation that Stuart Gordon did um, for, as I said, the, the short lived Showtime show Masters of Horror, which I have quite a fondness for. Um, Same. Rewatching this, I was reminded of how much I love that opening credit sequence. Yeah, it's a little cheesy. Like I was kind of like, but 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 a good cheesy. Like it's kind <laughs> of like, but you know what? It reminds me of because it's Showtime. It reminds me of the Dexter um, mm-hmm. intro. Also, that little like almost like blood drops. The, right, the br- blood droplets, and this one's a little less whimsical. And actually, when I rewatched it this morning one more time, my girlfriend was leaving for work, and she's and she's in the bathroom. She's like. What the? What were you watching in there? I'm like, <laughs> Masters of Horror. And she's like, Oh, okay. She's like, That sounded really weird and creepy. I'm like, It, it yeah. It, sometimes they are. <laughs> that was a. Uh, I. And it's funny because I, I only watched I think about half of the episodes in the first season, but watched the entirety of the second season. Mm-hmm. Um, David, did you watch the show as well when it was on? I was nuts about it when it, when it first uh, mm-hmm. came out um, because I think like and, and I can't remember there's uh, uh, there's been other sort of, since then there's been other sort of anthologies like this but the the roster of directors they got is truly impressive mm-hmm. yes and I don't know if you remember I, I don't remember the, the any specific ads or whatever but I feel like at the time Showtime was really playing up the idea of like. We let them do whatever they want. Like, um, uh, I mean, they obviously, as you can tell from Dreams in the Witch House at certain points, the budget wasn't super high for these. (laughs) But it does seem like they were pretty hands off and got to do uh, whatever they wanted. And it led to, I think, a really hit or miss roster, but that I, I have so much fondness for it, even for for the 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 misses um yeah uh but uh but the the hits the ones the ones that hit starting with um the very first episode um incident on and off a mountain road the don coscarelli one mm-hmm. coscarelli one which is like it's so good and also ethan Embry had like sort of he had been this like cute little heartthrob guy and then <laughs> yeah. kind of went away for a few years and <laughs> came back as this beefy tattooed survivalist like abusive <laughs> yeah. husband it was such a like uh, my mind was blown by that and i feel like i was hooked uh from the beginning so i think i've watched uh all of the um uh uh all of the masters of uh, of horror from um 
the the great ones like Jordante's Homecoming to the bad ones like Jordante's Screwfy Solution. I remember really liking that one, but I haven't seen it uh, since I first saw it, so I don't know if that holds up or not. But yeah, I wish there were just... I don't think they've ever put out just one full box set of just like every episode of both seasons. I, I, don't, I don't know why they can't... I don't know if they're a rights issue. I don't know what it is, but uh, that would be a nice thing to to have because this really was a, a curio and there are still episodes uh that i think about i was actually um uh i, th I think about larry cohen's episode um it's called pick me up uh, mm -hmm. from the yeah. first season is that one's great the um uh the second season's argento episode with meatloaf Pelt. is a ton of fun yeah. <laughs> um and then the one that i when i was looking today in 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 preparing for this, uh, the one I had somehow forgotten about that I really liked at the time is um, the Brad Anderson one with Chris Bauer. Yes, uh, sounds like. To call sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was that's yes. a really, uh, really cool cool episode. So, um, yeah, I was uh, uh, all in on Masters of Horror. It, it probably helped um, that at the time it was like it started shortly after I moved to Los Angeles and. Um, employment was sporadic for me, but mm. like my girlfriend at the time had a regular job, so we could pay for Showtime or whatever. <laughs> and so um, I, I I definitely remember them being in you know occasionally have having weeks at a time where I wasn't doing much. Uh, I remember them being a highlight of the, uh, of the week <laughs> uh, at, at times. But um, yeah, I I loved I love Masters of Horror. I love the the idea. I love most of the execution. Some of them I think are. Uh, range from forgettable to truly terrible. Oh yeah, uh, I think. I mean, I, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I think Argento's first season one, Jennifer. Mm -hmm. I remember hating that at the time. I don't know how that if that one holds up uh, to to you guys, but uh, uh, yeah, there's some good ones, yeah. bad ones. I see now. I I remember loving that one jennifer is is the name of it but and i, Same, I yeah. and, but now looking back and i can't tell okay was i just kind of a horny 20 something or does it or does that episode truly have something to say about how we're willing to overlook certain things for yeah. sex um right and right. or both i mean we contain multitudes i suppose um i forgot to mention the the maybe my least favorite episode, which is the first season's John Landis episode, written by Max oh, Landis, Dear, Dear Woman. Oh, it's Dear Woman, yeah. that's garbage. Yeah, that's yeah. garbage. Back yeah. then, and even especially now. Yeah. 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 <laughs> James. Yeah. Re re reflections on Massive Horror, favorite, least favorite. What were your thoughts? Well, yeah, like 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 David, I, I'm I was so excited about this show because growing up watching stuff like you know Tales from the Dark Side, you know. And, you know, Tales from the Crypt and all these like horror anthology shows. And like, you know, as a horror fan, you you just want anything. And like when you hear like, oh, they got all these like really big directors. And especially when I heard about, you know, John Carpenter doing some like cigarette burns in the first season, I really enjoy mm -hmm. a lot. Um, and, you know, the, like like the, the, the highs and the lows, you know, it, it still was something to look forward to every week. And then like. Also, the excitement of like the the one episode that could that Showtime would not show Takashi Miike's imprints, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I remember going, "What the hell?" Like, because being a Miike fan, no matter what his highs and lows are throughout his career, I'm like, "Okay, I got to like, when is that going to come out?" So it almost had this like, you know, this insanity to it. And, and going back to Jennifer, I grew up 
loving the comic book, like the the actual story that Bernie Wrightson drew. Oh, okay. And 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 it, and it was one of these comics for some reason, like it was, it was part of an anthology that I had that I should not have been reading at a young age. Like it was one of those <laughs> things where it's like graphic and the, and it's but it's so beautifully and horrifically drawn by Wrightson and. It was just this creepy story that I'm like, oh my god, they're gonna adapt that, and then, Steve, you know, and then Stephen Weber in it, and uh, mm-hmm. and and I think this is after he did um, the Shining uh, miniseries yeah, with, yeah, yeah. with Mick with Mick Garris, who, you know, if people remember, this is this all culminates from Mick Garris having these great dinners with all these directors, you know, like everyone from Del Toro, but then you had Carpenter, Toby Hooper, you know, and everybody and. Yeah, like, I you know I remember you know loving the Joe Dante Homecoming one like so much like that one was just a great you know punch you know to, like like political satire but done in in horror is always welcome to me and it's kind of like I kind of wish Romero did an episode of these yeah you know but you know then he did his Dead Time stories which is the less said about that the better. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, like, you know, you look at this, like, you know, crew of people, like, just, you know, you even had, like, William Malone, and I, I'm trying to remember that one, Fair-Haired Child. I'm trying to remember if I like that one or not. That one, you know? uh, yeah, yeah that's, that, that one, it didn't stick with me, because like, right. I, I, this morning, I was going through every every episode and trying to remember what I could, and that one, I uh, I probably haven't seen it since 2005. Same. So, yeah. But yeah, so I loved it. I mean, I, I loved the idea, and I remember, <laughs> I remember getting the the solo releases of a bunch of the first season ones, like the dreams in the witch house. And it had both the ugliest and the coolest like slip cover because it, <laughs> it had like this painted picture of the director the and then, and then like the little and the drawing of like whatever the episode was about. And then I remember, um, for some reason really wanting the one season, I think it was the first one that was in a skull. Oh yeah, DP yeah. set, you know mm-hmm. what I mean. Yeah. But, but I never got the full season. And like, yeah, I'm, I'm like David. Like, why hasn't this been put out? Like, is it rights issues or is, it... you know what? I, I, I think I'll, I'll late later after we record, I'm just gonna tweet out to Mick Garris because Mick Garris is like the nicest guy in the world, and mm-hmm. he'll respond to you. I'm gonna ask him, hey, yeah, why isn't this like the complete set? Just like give us a complete set, and he'll probably tell you straight up. Eh. It's because of this or because of that. So, but yeah, so, I mean, it was just a great way to get all like, and then the writers that they got involved, like Richard Matheson Mm -hmm. doing uh, Dance of the Dead with Toby Hooper, Joe R. Lansdale doing Incident on and Off Mountain Road. Like, and like, I'm I'm with you, David, like seeing Ethan Embry's transformation. And then since then, (laughs) since then, from this episode, like everything from cheap thrills to like the devil's candy and stuff, you're like, oh yeah, this guy, like he wanted to break away from, the ridiculousness of like Empire Records and yeah. the Candification film to this, you know. Well, yeah, like because right after this, he was on also on Showtime. He was on that show Brotherhood, where he was like yes, an alcoholic yes. cop or whatever. Right, right. Yeah. James, I think even uh, sometime during this episode, you should tweet at him and see if we can even get an answer before we wrap up. I think I will. There you <laughs> um, go. Yeah. Um, can I mention, sorry, uh, you mentioned Dance of the Dead, and I forgot to mention uh, that Billy Corgan did the score. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, Dance you're right. Dead, which I, I always like. And my um, brother was a, my brother is a huge Smashing Pumpkins Billy Corgan fan, and 
I remember him like shitting his himself, yeah. like, "Oh, we gotta watch this one right now. Yeah. We gotta listen to the music." I don't, I don't remember the music at all in that episode. So. Uh, and then the other, the other, I can't believe I forgot the other episode from season one that I really like is "Sick Girl," the Lucky McKee episode. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a cool one. Did not see that one. I, I don't think I've seen anything that Lucky McKee has ever done, to be completely honest with you. Actually. Yeah. Uh, um, and and not, not by design. May is so good. Yeah, May is awesome. Yeah. I, actually, yeah. we recently watched it. That's one of my girlfriend's favorite films. We finally watched it together, and we were, like, actually laughing. Like, it's not a comedy, but I think it's very comedic in its depiction, but then it's, like, it hits you hard with, like, the story. But I, I love May. I, I love Angela Bettis. I wish... I wish I saw her do more stuff. She's she's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um yeah. It, it might not be a comedy, but Anna Ferris is funny in May. Yeah. It? She kinda can't help but be funny, I think. Anyway. I, we're not here to talk about May. What were you gonna say, Jim? I, I was I had a, a number of things I was gonna say because this is all just conjuring up so many memories for me now. The funniest thing about James, yeah, the, the DVD covers like but only half of them were like that. So you had Dreams in the Witch House was like right. Stuart Gordon and then the picture, but then Jennifer was just the girl's face close up. So there was no consistency in the graphic design. Um, I think probably Brad Anderson's Sounds Like is probably my favorite one. I used to love Brad Anderson as a director. His career has taken a weird turn because like his early films, I know he started out as like an indie rom-com kind of guy. Um, yeah, next right. up, Wonderland. Yeah, and then uh, 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 Session Nine. I love oh. Trans Siberian. I think is probably his his masterpiece. And then did a lot of cool TV stuff for The Wire and Fringe and um, other other stuff like that. And then has just since then made a lot of forgettable genre stuff. I remember almost kind of hating The Vanishing on Seventh Street, um, and have not seen anything since that. But he was a guy that I, I really really loved, and so I was excited. Um, and also. I'd say my least favorite, I think it's We All Scream for Ice Cream. It's like a, a McNaughton's well, one in season two, which I think is... William William Forsythe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> With William Forsythe as, I believe, a a mentally handicapped ice cream man that gets killed because some kids pull a prank on him and he comes back as like a, a zombie clown. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, and, and another one that I remember digging because it's based on a Bentley Little story is the Washingtonians. Oh, yeah. In the second season, I was just but about I, to mention that one as one that I know I watched and I have zero memory of. But but that's what I'm saying. I know the story and I love Bentley Little and I wish his stuff was adapted more for the screen. But I I need to I need to rewatch it. I just remember it being very gross, like just like people in powdered wigs with like blood and guts everywhere. <laughs> yeah, by from Peter Medak who did uh the Changeling, which is awesome. Which uh, is amazing, yeah. Right, <clears throat> and I know they were working with limited budgets, but also if if. If we're considering the guy that directed Fear.com as a master of horror, then we've 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 strayed as a society. Um, and also, just one quick note: Fear itself on NBC, which Mick Garris also—that's the one I was trying to think. Yeah, of. executive produced, which the IMDb trivia calls it, or call in for Masters of Horror says that season three is called Fear itself. Like, well, no, that was an entirely different show, but is also, despite being on network, uh, also worth watching. There was some really good installments in that one, and also some really uh, bad ones uh, as well, but. Um, we are, of course, here to talk about Dreams in the Witch House, which you may have forgotten about because of that uh, tangent we went on. But, uh, David and listener, before we get into the discussion of the actual episode, of course, I love to dive into the, the background of the, the short story and provide some some context and, and background information for, um, for us. So the story was uh, written in January and February of 1932 and published in the July 1933 issue of Weird Tales. It was Lovecraft's... Um, 
fifth to last published story if we don't count The Evil Clergyman, which was uh, published posthumously and was kind of excerpts from a letter that he wrote to someone. A lot of the ideas in Dreams in the Witch House, specifically when it comes to kind of this dimensions and physics and the actual science he gets into, was likely inspired by the work of a Dutch mathematician, William de Sitter, who uh, made major contributions to the field of physical cosmology. Uh, I don't know what that entails, uh, per se, but, um, and he's mentioned in the story as, like, a, a genius along with Einstein, and I believe shortly before he began writing, writing this story, Lovecraft actually attended a lecture by William de Sitter, so there's kind of, you know, uh, top of the mind. Um, William de Sitter, uh, if you are not <clears throat> intimately familiar with who he is and what he's done, um, developed the concepts of the de Sitter space and the de Sitter universe, quote, a solution for Einstein's general relativity in which there is no matter in a positive cosmological constant. This results in an exponentially expanding empty universe, which, hey, uh, that's depressing. Um, yeah. the, the, uh, no the Lovecraft loved it. You know? <laughs> right. Oh, nothingness and insignificance. Yes, this is right up my alley. Um, the story was received largely poorly. Um, August Derleth said it was a, quote, poor story, and S.T. Josie referred to it as, quote, one of Lovecraft's poorest latter efforts. Um, it's been criticized for its reliance on too much of Judeo-Christian imagery. So, like, I mean, we've talked on this and, and, and in past Lovecraft's work, like, there's these old gods and these things out in space and these inhuman stuff, and this one is very much like, no, there's there's a witch, and there's, a, you know, the black man and the devil with hooves and this kind of stuff, and it's... It's been criticized for that because it's a little bit too close to mythology that already existed and also that Lovecraft himself rejected. Um, but if anyone listens to the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft um, literary podcast, a, a writer named Kenneth Height was on the three-part episodes talking about this one, and he says, well, but in the Lovecraft universe, the old ones are responsible for all mythology. So even, even you know, this Judeo-Christian myth is still exists within the in this world it's just it is equally as false as any other narrative that people um that people would conceive it it is um it deals with this idea of um magic as just being a misunderstood science which anyone who is a move a fan of uh kenneth branagh's thor knows that that is a, a a concept which has been continuously revisited in uh movies throughout the years um and that's uh about it but david probably doesn't care about any of that David cares about the Stuart Gordon adaptation. Well, actually, so I will tell you that um, as a reader, until yesterday morning, mm -hmm. I had never read any H.P. Lovecraft. Mm. And, I, and I read Dreams in the Witch House, um, and I really dug it. But I wonder if that, um, if that uh, uh, connection to familiar Judeo-Christian mythology actually might make Dreams in the Witch House a good entry point. Do you know what I mean? Oh, um, true. because I, I am I am interested in in reading more, and then of course, as I often do, um, making donations to anti-racist uh, uh, <laughs> charities uh, and organizations to offset um, the uh, you know in, indulging in such a problematic creator's works. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I thought um, I thought the story was was really good. Obviously, I don't have anything to compare it against because it's the only one I've ever read. Um, but I do plan on reading reading more now. And I I thought that his um, um, the the florid descriptions uh, were very uh, enveloping, and I thought that the um, specifically the, the descriptions of things 
outside of our dimension or outside of 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 earth like the uh uh there's a whole there's a piece of a railing or a balustrade that mm-hmm. uh from from whatever the dimension hell whatever you want to call it <laughs> that he brings back in the story that isn't in the that whole that whole part isn't in the Stuart Gordon uh, adaptation and just just the description of that object alone um uh was uh, really engrossing and if 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 all of his work uh is filled with stuff that that um sparks my imagination the way that uh these parts of dreams in the witch house did then i do look forward to reading more yeah that, that is certainly something that his his work is known for some of the thing that i i love about it not just uh it, it's his eloquent uh prose but also just how he does kind of go into detail uh enough about physical things but then other things kind of um, just describes, and this is going to sound weird, but gives you enough description to make you realize this narrator or this character cannot describe or grasp what he is actually seeing because it's outside kind of the, the, the confines of, of physics or cosmology that we are used to. Um, and, and this was especially, I mean, Dreams in the Witch House was in his later career when he was writing, I don't want to say his attitude was kind of like, eh, fuck it, but he was late enough where he was he was really just kind of owning who he was as a writer so this out the mountains of madness the whisper and darkness are some of like his longest pieces because he was really just kind of like this is the world i'm gonna i'm gonna dive into and this is the person that i am and so um i i as someone who can't grasp physics was never really good at math I, i did find it interesting how he does go into explicit detail about that which is i mean he did that in the color out of space too like there's a scientific grounding in the color out of space about you know the material they find and the analysis they that they do on it which makes sense considering that some of hp lovecraft's first published pieces were astronomy pieces for like a local publication basically so this was something that he was always very much into but i'm interested as someone who only started recently reading his stuff you have obviously recently like yeah like 26 hours ago <laughs> <laughs> but listen by the time this episode will be published it'll be much longer than that david oh, um, okay so but uh so your first exposure to this source material was the dreams in the witch house and this was something that you pitched to us as something you wanted to cover so what is it about dreams in the witch house the masters of horror I... episode specifically that you enjoyed so much i mean really this really stems from the, my fondness for masters of horror in general, I think is why, why it first came up, um, uh, as something that, uh, in terms of Lovecraft adaptations, I guess, I guess I assumed that your recent stuff like color out of space and the, and the, the big, uh, stuff like reanimator were already sort of accounted for by you guys. So I was like, what's something that I'm familiar with mm. that they might not have covered yet. And uh, Dreams in the Witch House came directly to mind because, uh, again, like I said, because I love uh, Masters of Horror and uh, holds a, a special place uh, in in my heart. Um, I'll admit, I remember it not being one of my favorites from the, the, the first season and rewatching it again last night. Um, some of that was uh, uh, upheld. <laughs> and then I, I also found, um, as it went on, I, I, uh, I, I did find myself just getting into the Stuart Gordon-ness of it in a way, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I, uh, uh, that, that's why I, I, I suggested it. That's why it came to mind. And are, are, would you consider yourself to be a Stuart Gordon fan? Cause I must admit, I mean, we've, like I said, 
we've covered every Stuart Gordon Lovecraft adaptation on this except, except for Castle Freak. And I am not honestly that familiar with his work outside of that. So I, I, I don't have much of a gauge. And I guess this is for both of you as just uh, how Stuart Gordon works as a director outside of this kind of stuff or, or this realm, basically. Uh, well, I think, and I have I haven't seen that much of his stuff either, um, uh, outside of Reanimator and uh, Edmund, which is a truly terrible, <laughs> I think, in my opinion, <laughs> uh, David Mamet uh, adaptation. That's just, that's just my opinion. But um, I think there's when I was younger, you know, when I first saw something like Reanimator, I was. Um, hesitant to embrace Stuart Gordon because I think there's a there is superficially I think a lack of style sometimes to him that he's he can be very straightforward um uh in 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 his presentation and um as I've gotten older and become I think a more sophisticated uh film fan that's actually something that I really appreciate that he's not uh, uh, dressing things up, and he has a few touches that uh, in in Dreams in the Witch House, uh, most of the sort of establishing shots of the witch house uh, are from like this extreme low angle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but outside of that, there's not that much of that sort of thing uh, in, in, in this. Um, and and so I think what that what that means is that when he has really supernatural things or often just really brutal things happen, they become, and maybe this is why people who are more uh, uh, dedicated um, uh, and rabid horror fans than I like him because the, the brutality hits harder, I think in something like, not that Edmund is a horror movie, but it kind of qualifies, but like when there are, when there's a murder in Edmund, it's like truly shocking, uh, truly upsetting because there's, there's no layer of style in between the what's happening and the person watching it a lot of the time. Um, and so I feel like his movies can get very uh, intense to those who are willing to um, viewers who are willing to look past the lack of irony in to him do you know what i mean like i i i feel like when you're a younger filmmaker, when you're getting into the idea that movies are something more than what you thought you look for for sort of postmodern things things that sort of wink at the audience and uh, or, or or things that let uh you feel like you're in on something with the with the filmmakers um and uh so it it, it weirdly took me uh, years to come around to to uh, a, a filmmaker who is um, maybe not the most sophisticated in the way we tend to think about that, but is um, a straightforward and very honest filmmaker, which has become something in filmmaking and art in general that I tend to really uh, r- respond to. And he's he's kind of uh, he was uh he was post ironic before uh that was a <laughs> before that was a, a a term and i wonder how much of that comes from i mean cuz he started it with a theater background i believe and that's how he and david mamet first met and became very good friends so i wonder where that comes from but then even hearing you describe that <laughs> makes me hate dagon even more 
um, because <laughs> it's it, I don't I don't think it is an honest and straightforward movie because of how things get muddled with its kind of goofiness, which we've James and I have talked about this numerous times before, um, and we'll get back to we'll get to Ezra Godin in in a minute. Um, but I, I recently on the uh, the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, I posted a poll, forgetting about Castle Freak, um, as to like everyone's favorite Stuart Gordon adaptation of Lovecraft, and n- not surprisingly, overwhelmingly, Reanimator number one, um, but a pretty handily number two is Dagon, and I still don't understand why people love it. And I I remember a guy chiming in and saying like, uh, you know, well it's a great parody, and I'm like, but a parody of what? Because he clearly loves this material, so what is he making a parody of? You don't parody the things that you love. I'm gonna stop, James. Dreams in the Witch House. <laughs> as someone who is who had seen this before, because this is my first time watching it. I watched it recently. So, what what were your impressions or or remembering remembrances? I don't know if that's a word of Dreams in the Witch House. Well, yeah, like being a Stuart Gordon fan, like and watching so much of his stuff before this episode aired back in you know 2005. I was excited, and I really liked it when it when it came out. Like I remember really liking the episode. Thought it was like, okay, this is cool. Very small, you know, location set, you know, limited characters, and then you know, rewatching it recently, I still like it, but I don't like it as much as I did initially. And I think, and I really think a lot of that has to do with the main performance by Ezra Godin. Like, I, I I think, like we said with the Dagon episode, um, he's a little too goofy for the material. And I think that's, like, glaring. And I don't know if that's just his style. I th- if I remember correctly, like, he's, he's playing, like, you know, American. But he's not American. I think he's from New Zealand, I think, if I remember correctly. Yeah. He's... Yeah, I, th- I think that's the thing. So... I think that's why it's off a little bit, his performances, because, like, he's... Or maybe South America. I'm, I'm going to look it up while we're talking. But mm-hmm. it's, just, it's just very bizarre to me, like, his performance, especially, like, Dagon, it's just, it's straight up, like we said, Harold Lloyd. Like, like, it's <laughs> yeah. like you know, it's like, ghost, you know? <laughs> but, but, like, in this, at points, he's not bad. Like, at points, like, like his fear... Like, the fear is okay at first, but then, like... Like you even say in the notes, and I agree with you. Like there was a point this morning when, while watching it, I was expecting breakfast to come, like from a delivery, and I paused it, and just his face, and like I was just, I was just <laughs> laughing. Like I'm like, what is with that face he's doing there? Like it was like this wide mouth, like fear from like waking up from a, a dream that wasn't really a dream, and. It was just kind of bizarre. It was weird, and like it, it just kept, it kept ruining it for me. Like it kept, not, it, it, I, I kept not enjoying it as much as I did initially. And I don't know if that was when I watched this back then. It was I was twenty five years old. It was you know, but now being forty, it's like Ezra. Like I, I don't know Ezra. Like. You're, you're. I mean, I guess you're lucky that Stuart Gordon really enjoyed working with you twice. Mm. Um, but he really hasn't worked since, and I think it's telling. Like, mm. I'm really trying to find out where he's from. I remember him. Talk, I think it was on the Dagon commentary that they talk about it. Like, I'm, I'm 
kind of upset. Like even his IMDb page, it does not say where he's from at all. It's just yeah, and he doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, so I'm right? not, I don't I don't know where to find. Where he's from. <laughs> I, I I think he's lost lost in the ether right now. Yeah, I I wonder if it's because. I don't know what Justin Thoreau was doing in 2005, but once Justin Thoreau took off, did we really need Ezra Godin anymore? <laughs> um, I said, you point. know, <laughs> it's um, watching rewatching this so soon after reading the source material, I found, yeah, I I, I can't say that Ezra, I think Ezra Godin's great, but I felt I feel like part of the problem starts even earlier with the reimagination of this character as kind of this uh um i guess golden boy like do-gooder like you know milk <laughs> yeah. toast whereas because the, the the main guy in the short story is kind of like an arrogant misanthrope mm-hmm. and and I, I i i liked that version of him uh better <laughs> that he that he knew the history of this or knew some of the history of this, this boarding house and sought it out for that reason. Mm, right. Whereas here you've got Ezra Godden introduced like gawking at the, at the, at the house. Um, and also we can get into, I mean, we, I talked about the, the budget's clearly low on these. The, the house doesn't make any sense from the outside to the inside. <laughs> right. There's, that you. doesn't look like a 300 year old house. And also the layout of the inside is not the same as what we're seeing. <laughs> it's not even close to what we're seeing from the outside. Um, so that, that kind of took me out of it. Uh, 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 every time there was an establishing shot of the house. But um, yeah, I, I, I do think if, if I know, I understand uh, that dreams in the witch house is like you said, it's, I guess one of, uh, Lovecraft's longer uh, short stories. Is that what you said? What, yeah, one um, of them. Uh, yeah, so I understand that uh, even though it's not, a, it's it's still a short story, it's um, stuff had to be cut out to fit into the hour-long uh, runtime, but I I, I, I did mourn the the idea that this, this student um, was actually seeking out uh, uh, this this history and not and not just uh, 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 a complete babe in the woods innocent that had this foisted uh, uh, upon him. Yeah, which I guess is done because we we need someone that we can relate to and and have mm-hmm. an arc and and be seen as a victim. But yeah, I, I think it's it's an interesting point because I think it's a lot more uh, interesting in the story because it, then it kind of hints at that idea of sort of a a destiny or an inescapable fate and also into the theme of like uh, um, prohibited or, or, or forbidden knowledge. Like he shouldn't be pursuing this kind of stuff. And because he is, right. he kind of yeah. not gets what he deserves, but he, he gets what, what is ultimately to be expected. Whereas, yeah, having him as this young naive student who has no idea about any of this kind of stuff is sort of does take it, uh, does take it uh, out of it a bit. I like your your thought about the the house because I was I remembered now one thing that was going through my mind as I was watching of this idea of because in in the book and and this is something this is a challenge that any filmmaker has adapting Lovecraft is he describes things which can't physically be possible so how do you physically create something in in a, in set design or set production that isn't physically possible and so I was thinking like well you can get away with that maybe if you do like a little House of Leaves thing where it's like wait. The the, the the dimensions of this house don't make sense on the outside versus the inside. If you would have played that up, maybe. Right. But right. Uh, that's not something that that they that they have uh, 
pursuit. Also, side note, I'm still waiting for a, a really good House of Leaves adaptation, probably, hopefully from David Fincher, but that'll probably never happen. Um, yeah, I don't know. And, and uh, Ezra Godin, like, to his credit, some of the, the goofiness kind of works. Like, when he... When he right. wakes up in the library and like he stands up and he's still in his underwear, like that's that's in the source material, or at least the idea of of, of there are sightings of like a guy in his in his night clothes walking around the streets. Yeah, and that's inherently funny. So that's like okay, we'll play with that. But then also, when the witch cuts his hand and just a fire hose of blood is pouring out onto this book, I'm like, I okay, you had me and then you lost me. I, you're not balancing the tone properly. <laughs> and what book? And what book is that, Jim? James, it was the Necronomicon, the book. Of I the know. Dead. Yeah, I love the uh, ear on the uh, outside and like look like a nose or something. Like, and I love like his. Sh- I, what I love though is the librarian at first is just pissed at someone being in the forbidden book section, mm-hmm. and then how did you get this book out? The Necronomicon. Like they have to say it. Like you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I, like that's another thing. Like with this episode that kind of like was glaring to me a lot of it and you know stuff that's from the story like you know the ending which we'll get into later and stuff like that but a lot of it's to show and not like a lot of it's you know like telling like yeah. telling the audience this is what it is this is the evil this is the and it's like sometimes what i love about lovecraft stories is that it's it's all about what we can't even imagine the 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 horror that is beyond the darkness and when it's just spelled out to you it's not as scary it's not as frightening it's just kind of like okay it's a witch with a a brown jenkin the uh rat the 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 man-faced rat (laughs) which that that performance is uh who's not uh never referred to as brown jenkin in the adaptation but is credited as brown jenkin in the credits i noticed correct right same same (laughs) and i was like what's funny though is the way they describe brown jenkin and you know in in the liter you know the, the the story and drawings i've seen over the years that are just horrifying like and then you see this version of brown jenkin which you know the the concept is scary like you know like imagine seeing a rat with a man's face and like almost like human hands that can grab and then you see his face and it's just like a guy just with like fur like a fur face mask you know and and, and, you know, and I think a lot of it has to do with the performance by uh, Yevgen Voronin, which is, this is his only credit. Like, they found this guy to play Brown Jenkins, <laughs> one and done. <laughs> He's like, you know what, I will never act again because I, this is mic drop. I'm, I'm <laughs> amazing. Yeah. But, and you like, know, I actually will... Uh, again, I'm not going to defend Yevgeny, you know, just like I didn't defend Ezra Godin, but again, I do think some of the problem is in this imagination of the character, because right. now, obviously, the way that Dreams in the Witch House is written, there's no actual dialogue in the story at all, but even within the description in, 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 the, in the story, Brown Jenkins doesn't talk. Right, exactly. It's a weird choice to have him talk. It makes it funny in a way that it's clearly not supposed to be right you know uh uh when he i can't remember she's coming or whatever he like the little like (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's like like i 
for some reason, I imagine like Peter Lorre playing this character. Right. If they did it back then, like 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 when Corman was doing his Poe adaptations, and like if they snuck in at Dreams in a Witch House, you could have had Lorre go, "He's coming for you." And it's like, yeah. I'll give you. and that's it's more funny. Yeah, it's it's funnier than anything. Yeah, I don't know what it is. It's just it, and no, I I agree with you, David. It, it's the it's the it's not even the performance. It's the execution of all these limitations, I guess you could say, which is fine. It's but did you like you said? Did they did they need to have him talk? It, it would have been creepy. It was just like staring at you and just like yeah. even if it's just snickering like that to me tells more. Like he's this little quote unquote lapdog of you know of her, you know, Keziah Mason. You know that's scarier to me than. He's just like hopping around, you know, just like attacking people and like boo, you know, like like that. Come on, like boo. Get, get <laughs> out, please. Like uh. I, it's funny. Once you mentioned Peter Lorre, I'm reminded of a, a Pat Oswald stand-up bit from a while ago. It's not even a part of a bit, but when he's talking about like how you saw this huge rat, he's like biggest rat I've ever seen. Danny DeVito in a rat suit, and so now I'm picturing Danny DeVito as Brown Jenkins, and I think. Oh. That, I think that would have been pretty brilliant. Hey, hey uh, she's coming for you guys. <laughs> um, uh, no, and I and I wonder too, like even changing it. Like I know it's a rat in the book. Make it like a dog or a wolf for this, so that you can at least like. Because I'm thinking of of how I actually think it was kind of effective in like the '70s version of uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers to just like put a mask on a dog because the fact that it's so kind of low grade almost like makes it creepier. I think. I agree with you. Yeah, like that's actually creepier. Just if it was just a person's face, like a mask. Yeah, like that that would have been more horrifying. Cause like, oh, what the hell is that? Like, mm-hmm. is that's like it looks weird. It looks kind of off-putting as opposed to just yeah. Eh. And that's closer to how I pictured Brown Jenkins when reading the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, now, David, maybe I had this bit planned that might not work because you read the story so recently, but. <laughs> Can you, off the top of your head, without looking up anything on your phone or on the internet, name the witch from the story? Well, yes, I could have because I uh, read the story yesterday and also because James just said it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Damn it. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. Both of you have ruined <laughs> this entirely. You, you've ruined this podcast. But I, I was trying to make a point of just because you said they don't they don't even name Brown Jenkins in this in this uh, this episode. I don't think they named Kaziah Mason either. I, I think you're right. I, I, you know, what's funny. You're, you're right because when um, Mazurowitz says she's come, you know, she's here, you know, she, she's marked you. It's always she and the witch. She, the witch. I think you're right. I think. But I think that's just because they get rid of. They never mention the whole backstory that this, that's in the thing. That this, the reason that 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 Lovecraft calls it the witch house is because during the witch trials, that's where they kept the condemned uh, women who had been found guilty of. Uh, 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 of witchcraft, and that's who Keziah Mason was, and that's and the legend is that she escaped through the walls, mm-hmm. and so that's that's all gone. This is just some witch in in this version. Yeah, exactly. Which I think is the biggest problem, and why this doesn't work for me because it, I understand it is a long story. You have to fit this all this information into an hour long episode, but the, he's kind of him and Dennis Paoli that and they worked together numerous times stripped away kind of what made the villainous character 
so villainous and then by you know and then also by proxy i guess stripped away kind of the tension or the conflict that existed in this or, or at least the imminent fate that that um uh gilman which is fun little nod to shadow over insmith um what he's ultimately you know kind of inescapably heading towards so like you said david like it's just it's just a witch in a house there's no significance to her and so while i don't have a problem with lovecraft including kind of this judeo-christian um mythology into it or at least the judeo-christian like kind of ideas of evil and what it looks like um if you were just watching this as like, oh, this is my first exposure into Lovecraft. Like, it, it's a very bad um, sample of what Lovecraft can be. You're just like, oh, so he's really into, like, witches and stuff? Like, well, well, right. no, there, there's more to it. And there's, you know, and, and there's science and physics and other dimensions. Like, oh, okay, because all I just see is uh, a witch who gets naked at one point. And oh, I guess Stuart Gordon saw The Shining because there's a, a sequence very similar to that. Yeah. And the other thing that I, I kind of was finding funny, Jim, is, you know, originally I know after Reanimator, they, Brian Usna and Stuart Gordon wanted to adapt this back then as a feature film. Mm. And what's funny is, and I, I think this is actually telling, this is a story that actually would have been better as a feature film. Like, you know, you, ha you have like characters taken out, like the black man who... Met, you know, like seeing that character depicted on screen, that that would be hard. You know, just like this darkness, like talking. You know, in in the you know the darkness. So it's weird that they you know they adapt a story that's long longer form that could be a feature film as a one hour episode, but then like Reanimator, which is you know Herbert West Reanimator is a much shorter stories. They make a feature film from Beyond is a shorter story. They make a feature film. It, it, it's weird. It's like they. They, it almost played with two different types of styles, and like, uh, like I, and usually I'm not the type that like you know I, I like one, you know I like you know, if it could be short and you could tell the story in that amount of time, cool. But there's a lot of the 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 great parts of this story that are just taken out completely. Like, you know, like David mentioned earlier when he takes that obelisk or whatever from you know where the old ones are, and seeing all these little things it's it's to me like you know and in, in a way i almost wish like someone like uh richard stanley would adapt this in his cinematic universe to show <laughs> more of the lovecraftian the, the lovecraft stuff you know like the old ones and all this other stuff it it almost like it doesn't feel like a lovecraft story even though it is and that's kind of like what i just keep thinking about like there's little glimmers of it and like the switch of you know Elwood's character being a woman in this which actually I think it's not a bad a bad addition no. you know I think it works well it's you also know? it's it, it works it's also a shortcut to getting the baby. The, the baby there which is yeah because yeah. in the in the story the baby doesn't even live in the building it's a whole it's some other baby um but it's a <laughs> shortcut of like having the old character and having the baby but right. i feel like a lot of the shortcuts are even if i hadn't read the source material are kind of obvious in that at one point he's like i've been having these dreams and it's like you've had one dream and it's like <laughs> right and it's like this is where she comes from in the wall that's where she came from the one time you mean because you've only had the one dream uh it 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 feels truncated he yeah he's he's pretty quick to immediately buy into um what's happening to him after a single occurrence of it happening to him 
Um, which, you know, once again, you have to speed up the story a little bit. And, and, and I guess I should say there is some efficiency of storytelling here that I, that I like. I mean, as, as you mentioned, changing Frank Elwood to Francis Elwood and, and having, uh, you know, having her introduce the baby. And even when they first meet and he's kind of like explaining what he's studying at Miskatonic and she's like, oh, no, okay, I don't, I don't really care. But then you, it, it kind of at least lays the groundwork of, okay, now when this witch appears for the first time, we can understand why without having to to delve too deeply into um, Lovecraft's almost kind of Brett Easton Ellis level of a of description of of, of some banal thing. Um, and and I also I will say one change that I did like, or I, I shouldn't even say change, but maybe build on the Masherwitz character and how mm-hmm. it seems to imply that like he was in Godin, Ezra Godin's place decades ago, ago and he yeah. made the mistake of helping the witch and now he's just this repentant guy who's basically kind of like um has lived the rest of his life with this guilt of what he did and sort of a, as a, a forecast of like this is who he could become i thought was really interesting because in the source material he's just kind of a religious zealot who lives downstairs mm-hmm. basically yeah i i like that too and then like it's it's inferred that like he's killed many babies for her and that and then then we of course we see in the walls how many baby you know skeletons are there and i i I like i like that little addition i think that was that worked a lot like where he has the same scars as ezra has now because he was tempted seduced yeah yeah Mm. yeah exactly that's an addition that felt like Stuart gordon trying to live, live up to showtime's like no restrictions thing. He's like, well, I, I guess I'd better put some sex and some some uh, <laughs> naked women in here. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah. I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit at that uh, um, when I watched it. Yeah. No. That, that's that's a good point because I was watching it too. And the, I mean, obviously, there's no point in the story where uh, the witch strips off her cloak and underneath she's this uh, this hot bod. But it, yeah, it's sort of like a, well, we we do have to like. Hey guys, we can put boobs in here. We should probably put boobs in here, right? Like, I mean, I I guess so. I, I guess so. I think, and it's and funny. Also, oh, good. I'm sorry. No, I was gonna say, I, and it's not even you know the actress. I think they got a separate actress to play mm-hmm. voluptuous body, which you know whatever yeah. a volu- voluptuous woman uncredited. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a great credit to have. You know, it also felt like. Maybe it's because Ezra Godin's so goofy. I felt like his he cusses a lot in a way that felt unnatural to me. That mm. felt like we're trying, we're like intentionally trying to go for a hard R. He's constantly like, "Fuck, god yeah. damn it!" But I didn't believe it from him. He seems like such a goody two shoes. <laughs> I also like James's description earlier of Harold Lloyd, like ghost. Only yeah. in this one we have like boobs. Like he's just yeah. he's just very surprised. Francis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what that's what a mother does when she comes home from a job interview. She just strips naked and yeah. with the baby crying in the background. Yeah. Ugh. No, the 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 um romantic element or tension I didn't need, like when he's he's got the baby and like, you know, I I, I think your mom likes me and I think I like her too. Like you literally just met this woman. Um yeah, <laughs> let's let's not go crazy here, um, college student. But yeah, it's um I don't know. I feel like everything I keep coming back to is I'm not against this story being adapted, but it would require someone who a director who doesn't have such a straightforward approach, but someone who's got a little bit more of an eye towards 
something visual or imagination because I know they, that he probably had a very limited budget and I'm on one hand I'm fine with Ezra God and Walter Gilman kind of going to sleep and then there's this purple flash and a witch appears fine but also some of the coolest moments are some of the ones where I was like really the most engaged is when he is in this other dimension and this witch is showing him just like weird creatures that I have to imagine like you're kind of like the from beyond creatures basically that's what I had in my mind that they're kind of floating around in space um I, I, but I wasn't really so engaged with the story when it was him in his house and, you know, dealing with his religious zealot downstairs and uh, his, his uh, another college student, Frank Elwood, who is also um, tuned into what's, what's been going on in the town. So it, it's like the, the most engaging and Lovecraftian parts have been stripped away and we just kind of have a witch story. And it, I'm not really that interested in that. Well, I I do think that we've talked mostly about the things we don't like. Um, <laughs> uh, about it. I do I do like the climax uh, uh, of it, and I'm not sure how much uh, are spoilers fair game here. Are you assuming the listener listener mm-hmm. has watched? Always, okay. yeah. Okay, so um, yeah, once he like loses it and he's breaking through the wall and he and he crawls through there, and then the whole scene uh, with the baby sacrifice and. Um, yeah, the one part of the story I'm really glad they kept, which is uh, Brown Jenkins killing the infant, was uh, yeah. th- th- uh, that was all uh, I think very very uh, I- intense, and um, I think it got to where it needed to be. I enjoyed that, and then it got to gets to the <laughs> denouement and the mental institution uh, that I didn't need for a little too explainy, a little too <laughs> wrap up. Uh, uh, yeah, which is 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 even an element of like a, a person in an insane asylum kind of giving you his his rundown of what happened. That is, you see that in Lovecraft stories that often happens, David. So not to spoil any future Lovecraft stories for you, but a lot of them start out with like I'm writing this story from you know behind the walls of this institute because like <laughs> they've they've experienced this thing and they've gone insane and no one believes what they've encountered. So that is kind of a Lovecraftian element, and and I guess it was kind of. I don't know if fun is the right word, but then having Brown Jenkins, like, burst out of Walter after kind of eating him on the inside, like, oh, okay, all right, well, that's a that's a fitting a fitting ending for this character, I suppose. Oh, and um, by the way, Ezra Godden is from, actually, London, England. Oh. Yeah. So, and his birthday was two days ago. <laughs> uh, so, that... happy birthday, Ezra. It makes it, because he was in Band of Brothers, and a lot of them are, yeah. are English. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Still, it's just, it doesn't. I don't know why. It's just a little off. I don't know what it is with his performances. Yeah, there, there's definitely something. I don't even want to say lost in translation, but maybe. I I feel like, and maybe this is unfair, but I feel like it's either Gordon isn't doing a great job of directing him, or maybe he's not a very good actor, or they're trying to go with a a certain vibe for a story that I don't think is organic or inherently can be applied to that story. I mean, and this, once again, this goes back to the criticism I had with Reanimator and the criticism I had with Dagon. Um, Not the criticism I had with From Beyond, though. Though, if you would introduce Ken Forey into this uh, story, it becomes infinitely more fascinating, I think. so much better, so much better. Um, Oh, so things we liked. How did did you guys like the the soundtrack for this episode? 
Uh, I, I I thought this score was kind of cheesy, personally. Yeah. Well, it's Richard Band, who's done Reanimator and From okay. Beyond. So it's a little a, a culmination of him coming back. Yeah, his stuff can be very cheesy. It wasn't offensive, um, yeah. <laughs> which is like sometimes some sometimes they try to play it up a little too much. And um, another thing I like, the, the baby, actually. I, I actually like... Usually I hate babies in movies, like, and I want them just to die. Like the moment I see a baby, it's like, please kill then, them off. Oh man! And then the one time you don't want the baby to right. die, it totally dies. Yeah. Right. I'm like, I was so pissed. I'm like, oh, this baby was cute. Why? Like, I don't know. But I'll be honest, I don't remember the score at all. Um, if you had actually told me that, oh, I thought it was interesting that Stuart Gordon went without a score, I'd be like, yeah, no, that was cool because I, I don't, <laughs> I don't remember the uh, oral experience of this movie uh, one iota, but. One thing, I mean, one thing I did like, and I, I've touched upon this already, what they did with the Master Witch character, and especially at the end when we see him taking all of his crosses and crucifix and putting them in a box, and then, yeah. I, I mean, I don't love that he hangs himself, but just the 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 culmination of that journey of just, like, he did this thing long ago, he felt guilt and shame for it, he was trying to, like, overcome it, and he couldn't, and it's just kind of a, a sort of his journey in 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 this adaptation of dreams in the witch house is kind of the journey that walter gilman went through in the story so they kind of gave it to the wrong character i think and what's funny with him with that character was it were, it was originally supposed to be played by jeffrey combs oh, yeah. oh. and and i think that would have funny enough even though i love jeffrey combs it would have been cool to see jeffrey combs in another adaptation of lovecraft with stuart gordon I think it would have taken away from that character. I think it was yeah. better Campbell Lane, just very like sa the sadness in his face and like the bruise on his head mm -hmm. from him smacking. And, yeah, I like and, that touch. And what I love about him packing, like, you know, the, the initial time when you first watch this, right away you, you know something's up because when, when he packs that first cross, it doesn't even fit into the box. Yeah. And then he just keeps piling them up and you're like, okay. You know what I mean? And I think that's actually more powerful. He's not saying, he's just, this is it. I, I tried one last time to stop this this witch by trying to help Walter, and it didn't help at all. Like, it, it's it's a cycle. So he, he ends his own cycle at the same time that Walter's getting killed in the in asylum by <laughs> Brown Jenkins. And I, I think that actually works, you know, like as, okay... The witch is technically gone now. I mean, the, that's another thing I like about this episode. The gore in limited stuff is pretty good because it's K&B doing it, you know, Nicotero and stuff. So it looks good, you know, mm -hmm. as, yeah. as, a, 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 except for that one shot of Brown Jenkins eating the, you know, the baby. <laughs> and it's like so CG'd, like, and it's just off-putting. Like, yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the CG is uh, pretty weak. Uh, yeah. yeah, um, I didn't know that about that he wanted to cast Jeffrey Combs because I'm yeah I'm a big Jeffrey Combs fan, awesome. and um, of course in uh, Masters of Horror season two when Gordon came back he cast Jeffrey Combs in the Poe adaptation. The Black yeah, Man. which I'm so sad I never got to see that live. Like it was a stage production that he kept doing oh, yeah. with Stuart Gordon. Mm -hmm. You know, like they toured it, and I'm like, I love that. Jeffrey Combs has played both Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft in adaptations. Like, <laughs> I love that about him. Like, he's just, like, I'm trying to think of other, like, horror authors he can play, you know, like, from back then. 
Like, you know, someone else. Oh, you know what? You could also play this guy. I feel like you said from back then, because I was about to say Dean Koontz, even though oh, I, I, yes. I, I legitimately have no idea what Dean Koontz looks like. So Oh, he looks like... He looks like Jeffrey Combs with a mustache. Actually, that's kind yeah. of funny. Okay, that's I, a good. That's a good tell. Like you'd even know, and you 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 cast the perfect Dean Coons. <laughs> Although Dean, if you if I remember correctly, Dean Coons played himself in an episode of Children's Hospital on Adult Swim. Really, <laughs> yeah. that's amazing. Actually, <laughs> I what? think they did they did an episode of Children's Hospital that was like a parody of like a Faulty Towers episode. Okay, and. Um, Henry Winkler's character was all like uh, in a in a tizzy because his favorite author Dean Koontz was coming to the hospital. <laughs> you know, I, I I think I've I can't even say I've read one Dean Koontz book. I've tried to read one Dean Koontz book, and that was enough for me. Which one did you try? Had a bird on the cover. I don't know. Uh, some guy was like in an isol like an isolation tank and kept having visions of what was happening in real life. I don't know. It, it, it was just like I, I I tried to read it as a middle schooler, and even as a middle schooler, I'm like this is not really edgy or scary, so I'm not gonna keep reading this anymore. Yeah, I'll give you that. But <laughs> anyway, um, any uh, any any final thoughts that we have on a uh, on dreams of the witch house? I think I said everything. Yeah, I think <laughs> everything there is to be said. <laughs> I think we did. We went through everything. Yeah, yep. like good, bad, ugly. Yeah, we. Yeah. Nothing else can be said about dreams in the witch house. We've covered everything. But um, I, yeah, I mean, getting back to David's fondness for Masters of Horror, watching it again, or, or watching it for the first time. Now I want to go back and rewatch all Masters of Horror, which is kind of Same. upsetting because I think. Not that it's impossible to get. It's kind of inconvenient because even on Amazon, there's no rental option. It's just a purchase. You either purchase the season or you purchase the episode and that's it. Oh, James is going to correct no, me. It, it, no, no, no. It's on Tubi for free. Is it? It has commercials. Okay. And a little little weird, you know, like because this show was not, didn't have commercials because it was on Showtime. But sure, yeah. they do it decent enough and, you know, yeah. So it's on Tubi. Like, actually... I Luckily enough, if, if anyone wants to watch this again, it's on Tubi and all the episodes, all both seasons are on Tubi. I rented this on YouTube. You can rent it really? for two bucks. Okay. Not bad. Yeah. Here I am, the sucker that now owns Dreams in the Witch House, because I thought that was my only avenue. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> now you're gonna have to rewatch it one day down the line, you know. <laughs> Maybe on uh, I was I was gonna say that the holiday that they're that they're or, or the, the Oh. Festival that they mentioned in the the story, and I forgot what it is. Wall purchase or wall, 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 like that's right, wall purchase night or something like wall, that. Yeah, wall burgers night. That's what it was. Wall burgers, wall burgers <laughs> night. Yeah, we could all have some burgers from uh, Marky Mark and the Funky Bunch. Yeah. <laughs> so, truly, truly a terrifying <laughs> thought. <laughs> um, well, David, thanks. Uh, thanks for pitching this. Thanks for uh, joining us. Though I, I do, I am going to send you the invoice for the dollar uh, ninety nine that I I now bought. <laughs> dreams in which i was for but uh well i mean that's how much i paid to rent it so you're kind of we're in the same boat <laughs> i guess that's true um but if people uh if people dig listening to you david where can they find more of, of you and, and tyler on the internet battleship pretension.com and you can follow me on twitter at davy pretension um there was something i was going to mention but i forgot so i will just go into our wrap-up which is of course it's easy to get in touch with us at movies of madness at gmail.com 
I am uh, Nolan Fixes Teeth on Twitter. James is Fistful of Media. Um, you can find um, us on Facebook as well and on Twitter at um, Cast Cthulhu. Is that correct, James? Yes, yeah. it is. I, it I is. should know this, but I'm kind of auto-signed in on Twitter, so I don't even really pay attention same, to it. Same here, same here. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, and uh, yeah, of course, uh, you can find all of our back episodes on um, uh, castofcthulhu.podbean.com. Um it is now the end of August and the end of this month, which means we are looking ahead towards the future. And, um, well, I thought, you know, it's August, so school is starting up in August, school is starting up in September. There's a lot of fear and uncertainty on the horizon about what that's going to look like, what that's going to do to us. So I figured, um, why not uh, cover adaptations of The Lurking Fear? Um, it's a, it's a stretch and I'm just kind of winging it on this, but that's what we are going to do. And there are two of them. Um, there is the titular lurking fear from 1994, uh, directed and written by C. Courtney Joyner, starring your friend of mine, Jeffrey Coombs as Dr. Haggis. (laughs) Um, and this, this is also relevant to David who is here because David C. Courtney Joyner was also the writer of Class of 99, the sequel to Class of 1984. <laughs> Which is amazing. I love Class of 1999, actually. So I've never seen the sequel, but I, oh. I love Class of 1984. Oh, yeah. it's If if you love 1984, it's nothing to do with 1984 at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like a sci-fi horror movie with robots, teachers, killing students. So... Um, yeah, and then sounds pretty good. The other, <laughs> the other adaptation is um, Bleeders, or if you search for on IMDb, it is called Hemoglobin, um, uh, starring Rutger Hauer, and yes. um, co-written by um, James's favorite uh, Dan O'Bannon. Yeah, I'm I'm excited for that one. I've actually never seen that Bleeders before, so yes, I'm, I'm actually the the funny enough the lurking fear one I got for free from full um full moon. Um, productions when I signed up for their uh, streaming service, so I have it still wrapped. <laughs> I found it. I found it in the move, so I'm like, oh, okay, I'll keep this out. And then when you said we were covering, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, so I'm gonna have to cut that shrink wrap off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's it for Dreams in the Witch House. That's it for August here on Castle Cthulhu. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. David, thank you so much for joining us for first time with Cassie Cthulhu. Thank you. Um, yeah, so be sure, uh, listeners, to tune in um, next time. We'll be covering uh, The Lurking Fear. But um, in the meantime, we'll be waiting and dreaming with dead Cthulhu in his house in Relia.